0: one week season
1: oh ws fam the nation my dudes and dude ets we are back week 12 main slate week 12 dudes oh my lord time is flying by hope everyone is had a safe and happy holiday thanksgiving weekend hope everyone is out of their food coma we are here to bring the heat for week 12 without further ado mr x how are we doing today man
0: i'm doing awesome i am about five pounds heavier uh no regrets i'm a little bit wealthier because i shipped a showdown on thanksgiving um I'm excited. It's weird, man. It's like the season is two thirds of the way through. You ever have do you have that feeling? Like, I don't know, I get this where it feels like the first few weeks of the season I'm always sort of trying to like get back into the groove of like thinking about NFL and, and being NFL lineups. And then I feel like by the time I sort of like feel like I'm comfortable and in the swing of things again, the season's half over. And I'm like, damn it, why can't like why can't it just be year round? I I usually... That.
1: I usually am totally like that. And honestly, last year was the first year where I burnt out towards the end ever. Like it was the first year ever I'd burnt out on NFL DFS. And this year with, um, writing up the team previews and doing some other work around the site. Like I felt like I was in pretty like mid season form pretty quickly. Um, and then obviously the results have not been there, but, um, yeah it was uh it was weird it was kind of a weird surreal feeling this year for me anyway where i felt like i was thinking clearly and and the way that i should have been pretty early um but yeah yeah um, i need I to hope like make
0: the connection between thinking clearly when i'm like thinking about the slate and and talking on the podcast and all that and writing the content and then actually building the lineups and like last week i realized and like sometimes i just get in a rush you know and like and part of it is I keep getting sucked into like chasing the massive overlay that Yahoo has, which I is wonderful and it's been profitable. Um, But it also means I'm building 150 lineups every week. And so it's like extra work. Um, And so I realized when all was said and done that like the game I talked up last week as my favorite game to stack of green Bay, Minnesota. um, I didn't actually like, I, I had some MME entries with it, but like, I do my, my sort of three max, like high dollar stuff on FanDuel. And I somehow just didn't, build a lineup around that game on FanDuel. And then, of course, like that game goes nuts. And I'm sitting there thinking like, what the hell am I doing? And, you know, it's uh, the lesson here, I suppose, if there is one is... Uh, you can be a sharp player or a sharp analyst uh, if you if you choose to think that I am one um, and you can still make dumb mistakes, right? Like that was, I just overlooked that. And when I was building rosters, I just didn't actually go back to build a roster around that game, which obviously I regret. Um, but, you know, more importantly, like uh, my bankroll regrets because that game went berserk and it would have been, you know, at the very least it would have been profitable to have had a roster around that given how much else failed. So, you know, do the analysis, think the slate through. Um, but then also like applying the analysis as you're building your rosters is, you know, is is equally, if not more important than than thinking it through smartly uh, in the sort of the the analysis, the pre-weekend phase. Um, and Lorejo brought up something really interesting in the Oracle this week. He noted that um <clears throat> something I never thought of that on Thanksgiving week, you know, normally we're thinking about the main slate for a larger chunk of the week. And now be, I think most of us were spending time thinking about the Thanksgiving slate and, and then also being busy thinking about like the holidays and like whatever we're doing for Thanksgiving and family plans and blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, it's getting into this really busy time of year. And so, you know, I think that there's some edge to be found in just like And just making sure that you're setting aside some time to really like think about the slate. And that's something I've always pushed as as part of like my edge is I sit there and I try to think about the slate. I, I don't read content. I just like try to like set some time aside to sit and think. And I find that really useful. Um, and I encourage everyone to like make sure you're setting aside time in this like busy time of year, this busy week um, to actually like think about. Uh, the slate and make sure that you're thinking it through and don't be me this weekend being like, Oh my God, I knew I should have built around this game and I meant to build around that game. And I didn't let my lesson be uh, one for me, one that you can learn from.
1: That's actually a really, really sharp point. And, um, I mean, without like regurgitating <laughs> everything you just said, um, I did a similar thing this past week. I went back and re- reread my end around and, um, I had in the end around a, uh, I believe it was an AJ Dillon, Devontae Adams, and Justin Jefferson stack. Um, and I ran that once, but I never really considered. And I ha- I did read JM's work last week as well, where he mentioned um, the MVS and Devontae Adams uh, mm-hmm. with Justin Jefferson bring back. And I did not play that. Um, and I think it was due to not having my normal time um last week as I was making preparations for you know the holidays and all that good stuff coming up um to think through the slate. And typically my my um my process and my habit pattern is when I am like going to bed on Friday and Saturday nights. I I like throw on some headphones, put on some music and just lay there and think through the slate for that week and think through Not necessarily anything that I'm missing, but like anything that I felt like now that I needed to consider a little bit more heavily. Um, Because by that time is finally, you know, usually I'm writing the end around on Friday nights. So I have a pretty good grasp on the slate. I'm getting prepared for this podcast on Saturdays. Um, So by then, I typically have a pretty good idea of, you know, the makeup of the slate. Uh, Well, last week, I didn't have, I didn't set aside that time. Um, And it's even like, an hour on Friday, an hour on Saturday. You know, it's not like, I don't know, we don't have to take it to JM's level where he's taking a bath every day and thinking through football. Uh if anybody listened to that podcast, they know what I'm referring to there. Um but yeah, that that is extremely important. And when you think about this week, um, the Thursday slate, even on the site, even on OWS, like all of the written content came out a day later than we have seen in other weeks. And that was Obviously, due to the Thanksgiving slate, um, there's a lot of emphasis that goes into the Thanksgiving slate because everybody is watching it. I think the uh, the middle game, the the Dallas and the Raiders game, had like the highest viewership in the last like 13 years or something crazy like that. Um, so it's it's high visibility. Uh, so we wanted to you know place emphasis where it needed to be placed, um, and getting those eyes on that Thursday uh, Thanksgiving slate was a big deal. So that's kind of why uh, you see everything coming out a day later than we're used to this week. That said, timelines are more condensed. So make sure that we're taking the requisite time, whatever your habit patterns are, whatever your process is, um, to get that time to really think through the slate. You might find these gems that you would have otherwise missed um you know you don't want to find yourself talking like x and i are here today uh with the the regerts, not even one letter um of last week you know not considering something more heavily i'm i'm not usually oh and i guess sorry i'm going on a little diatribe here but last week i was pissed at myself and i haven't been pissed at myself in a very long time um even though the results have not been there entirely for me this year i'm kind of just treading water but I really was pissed at myself last week for not considering one of the top scorers uh, on the week in Elijah Moore. I didn't even consider him. I wrote that game up too, and I still I didn't even consider him. And that is what really ticks me off. Um, I'm fine missing a play uh, if I have thought through how he can succeed. How can he f- How can he fail? And JM talked about this a couple weeks ago on the Tuesday Training Podcast. That not often does he find himself missing or not considering a player um at all and that's really where it opened my eyes to like hey jackass like wake up you need to make sure that your process is tight so I love that. Sorry. Yeah. Dietribe Ober. Like definitely been there on Showdown, uh, man.
0: I've like read I've like, you know, I've written a showdown article and then I've built my lineups and then I've like gone back after lock and been like, oh hey, like I wrote this guy it was such a great play. And then like he smashes and I'm like, I had eight percent of him in my hundred and fifty lineups. Cool. <laughs> Can we, can we also yeah, just yeah, note these yeah, sort of, yeah, the sure, these sort of comedic value of a, a grown man taking a bath every day so we can think about DFS? And like I don't know why. I just find that funny. And I wonder if it's something yeah. to do with, like, I'll <laughs> say this. A friend of mine, a colleague of mine at work uh, a while back said something to the effect of every parent needs to hide from their children once in a while. And I'm like, OK, I get that. I get that. And I'm wondering if that's part of it.
1: Yeah, most of us do, husbands and fathers do that on the shitter, uh, but yep. bath is equally as <laughs> equally yeah. as tranquil and yeah, calming. one of the one of
0: the great <laughs> myths of uh, of the genders is that men have somehow convinced women that it takes twenty minutes to take a dump. Oh yeah, dude.
1: Yeah, <laughs> my uh, my wife like has been calling bullshit for five years, but I'm like, ah, I don't know, man. So just, it's a it's a dude thing. You got to do what you got to do. <laughs> this is coming off the rails fast. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah. Happy Thanksgiving to all. Happy holiday weekend. Let's dig into the slate, man. I want to. I want to first hear Xandamir's macro thoughts before I open my mouth at all about the slate. So I'm going to turn it over to you, X. From a macro perspective, how are you seeing this slate? A broad question, but.
0: okay. so at a high level, like we have a bunch of really good teams that aren't on the slate, right? Because of Thanksgiving, we had, you know, the Bills, we had the Cowboys, we had the Raiders um, all playing on Thanksgiving. We have the Ravens playing um, Sunday night and I don't even know who Monday night is anymore. Um, but the Chiefs aren't playing on the slate. Maybe they're on, maybe they're Monday night football. I probably have to write that up. Uh, or they're on bye, I guess. Um, we have the Seahawks, you know, not on the slate. So there's just a lot of teams that aren't, like, a lot of good teams that we traditionally target heavily in DFS, not on the slate. And so that's led to, you know, there's only one game with a 50-plus total, of course, which is Bucks at Colts. Um, it's also one of the few games where the total has gone up uh, since the line opened. It opened at 51 51.5, not 53. Um, so, you know, we have like, that's the clearest game on the slate to target. And, and we've seen this a few times this year where there's one clear game or two clear games. And then there's a few kind of reasonable games that are just a tick below that. Um, we've got Vikings at 49ers at 49. Um, that's another one that's also gone up since open. Uh, and then we have a smattering of, you know, games kind of in the like mid forties. Like we have Chargers at Broncos. We have Rams at, uh, Packers. We have Falcons at Jags, um, we have Eagles at Giants, all those in kind of the mid to high 40s. And so there's like one clear best game and then a sort of clear second tier um, and then kind of the crap tier <laughs> of the games that are all, you know, the totals in like 45 or below um, or all the rest of them. So that means that we're going to have a lot of condensed ownership. And it's funny, I actually didn't really think of this early on. I mean, I knew there was going to be a lot of ownership on on the Bucks. Right. Um, and probably on Michael Pittman is the clearest bring back. Um, but i thought that like i thought ownership would be more spread out than it was this week, or that it's looking like it will be but that there's that thing where like chalk forms no matter what and you know we're still seeing chalk forming now what I think is interesting is on a week like this where there aren't a lot of really clear like great game environments to attack um chalk always forms because that's just the nature of what happens right like there's projections come out and content writers write content and they start they're all writing about the same plays and the kind of ownership kind of coalesces around these plays that are projecting well um but on a week like this a lot of that shock is is quite fragile and we'll get into that when we start talking the position by position um but so i'm seeing like you know, there's a few, there's a few clear best game environments to target for me. Um, I'm seeing <clears throat> there's a lot of chalk fragility, which is exciting to me for tournaments because uh, it means the field is going to be, I think, perceiving more certainty than is really there in some of these plays. And Not that they're bad plays, but I think the field, like, when they're really highly owned, I think it's a sign the field is perceiving them as safe, um, as a high likelihood to hit. And I don't think that's necessarily true. Um, the chalk construction, I think, to me is not super clear outside of like tight end and defense um there's the ownership is kind of spread out all over the place price wise um and so i'm not seeing like a real like i'm not seeing a clarity of like everyone's gonna be paying down twice at running back and that's it so i think there's a lot of variance in like the running back and wide receiver salary allocation but at tight end and defense it's extremely clear um, yeah i think that's yeah that's the i think that's the macro view i have right now and so i think it's a really exciting slate for tournaments <laughs> as most of them are, um, but I, I love tournament slates when the chalk feels more fragile than normal. There's a higher likelihood of failure for for the highest on plays than there normally is. That's exciting to me.
2: Yeah, so
1: let me put that all those words in a different lens or a, I guess a different way to visualize what this slate is. First off, before I get into like the numbers and and stuff like that, we, I left the chalk build rather nebulous in the end around because it is this week. The one thing that we can be fairly certain about is the field is likely to adopt balanced rosters this week. We're seeing that through the expected ownerships. We're seeing that through content around the industry. And we saw that as early as, um, I believe it was, I forget what piece JM put out, but I think it was in the angles email where he said that we can gain an advantage by carrying chalk builds. And, and, It's not that I disagree with that. I just think that the field in their, you know, as we've explored previously, their level two understanding of game theory senses that, hey, these top level guys, um, there aren't a lot of them, one that carry 40 point ceilings and the ranges of outcomes are slightly barbell left. Um, So what does that mean? That it it means that if we played out the slate a hundred times, their median production would be slightly um, greater than the mean. So it shifts the uh, bell curve slightly to the left. So that, like we've discussed previously, that they still have the you know 40-plus point upside ceiling, uh, but it's a little bit less likely that they're going to hit it this week. With that said, what comes out of that is this slate where Like the value pieces that we're typically searching for, um, at the running back wide receiver, tight end positions, those value pieces are going to be a little bit, have a little bit of less emphasis on them from the field. So if we can identify, are there one, are there any, you know, pay down running backs, pay down wide receivers, pay down tight ends that allow us to gain, gain access to these higher price guys? that still have the 40-point ceiling, but maybe it's a little bit less likely, that combination and that um, combinatorial ownership and that roster construction, most importantly, is going to be under-owned this week. So that's immediately kind of where my, I don't know, emphasis or I guess, yeah, I guess emphasis is the right word, emphasis of where I kind of thought I was going to be taking my rosters this week went to. So, we're gonna get into how I'm gonna make that happen, how I'm gonna be approaching that uh, here shortly. So, that's kind of my idea of the macro perspective of the slate. Although we don't know for certain where, you know, within different pricing tiers players are gonna end up because ownership is expected to be so spread out, we have a general idea that the field is gonna be trying to look for, you know, more balanced rosters. And if I can identify, you know, some pay down guys that gate me access to those top guys, that's kind of where. I would want to be this week is particularly at low ownership. All right. That said, let's take a look at kind of the makeup of this slate. There are X broke down all of the game totals. That is clearly evident. Let's take a look at ownership. There's only seven players, one of them a defense that is expected to garner more than 20% ownership this week. That's on the low side. The Texans defense here's your chalk paydown defense of the week, is expected to come in with the highest ownership on the entire slate at about 28 to 30%. From there, listen to these names and stop me when you hear, or actually, as I'm naming these names, I want you to count how many you expect to carry 40-plus point upside, and I want you to count how many you'd expect to have a floor greater than 15 points this week. So I'll go slow.
2: James Robinson, Chris Godwin, Christian McCaffrey, Darrell Henderson, Michael Pittman, and I can't believe I have to
1: say this, Miles Sanders. Those are the six skilled position players that are expected to garner more than 20% ownership. Who are, now let's compare that to who are the players that carry that 40 plus point upside that we talked about earlier, however, less likely chance of hitting it. They are the three highest priced wide receivers, Cooper cup, Devonte Adams, Justin Jefferson, sorry, the four highest highest-priced wide receivers and Debo Samuel. Those are the four guys that will hit 40 points. If we played out the slate a hundred times the most. The last one is obviously Christian McCaffrey at running back. So Christian McCaffrey was the only name that were, was expected to be greater than 20% owned. Okay. So that is actionable information for us. So that is kind of the state of the slate and then the theory behind how I'm seeing the slate and how I think it differs from how the field is seeing the slate. Personally, how I'm attacking that with all that understanding is I'm putting a little bit of extra emphasis on these five players that I think have the greatest chance of going for 40 plus points. Again, Christian McCaffrey, Cooper Cup, Devontae Adams, Justin Jefferson, and Debo Samuel. What's also interesting about that list, all four of those wide receivers are playing in two games. So if they're not expected to garner ownership, They're playing in correlated pairing matchups. That is a high leverage situation that we can look to take advantage of. Also, both of those games, Rams and Green Bay and Minnesota and San Francisco are in that like magic range for us when we're looking for under owned upside uh, that we typically look out of game totals between 47 points and 49 and a half points. So all that's kind of come together for me to place a little bit additional emphasis on these, uh, you know, the top four highest priced wide receivers and Christian McCaffrey this week. X, what are your thoughts on that after we kind of went through how I'm seeing things?
0: Yeah, I'm in agreement with you. So, like, if you look again, this top six guys, right, really quick. Godwin, James Robinson, CMC, Darrell Henderson, Michael Pitt and Miles Sanders. If we just talk about them kind of really quick, like Godwin's a great player. Um, He's in a good spot. He's coming in at massive ownership. I think that, you know, he's fine um but he definitely does not have a 40 plus point put the slate away will bury you if you don't have him kind of ceiling with mike evans playing if mike evans misses then god you know that's a big boost to godwin um mike evans on the other hand is like 7% projection Bingo. currently which I, I expect that to go up a little bit because i think his his projection is a little low because like he wasn't expected to play earlier on um james robinson does not have that kind of ceiling and again he's like fine but you're do you really want he has opportunity. He's got talent, but he's also on a broken offense. You know, like and again, these aren't. It's not to like say these are terrible plays, right? This is just saying there's. I'm just knocking holes. I'm putting out the downsides of these chalk plays. Um, James Robinson could hit. He's in a good matchup. He's he's getting a lot of workload, but he's he he could get Urban mired right? Like he's he's playing for one of the the most poorly coached teams in the NFL, and his workload is not exactly guaranteed slate uh, slate to slate. CMC is awesome. Um, Daryl Henderson that really has no ceiling to him because they're not letting him get much about like in the 20 plus touch range. He's really getting to 20 I think he's gotten 20 like twice this season or something like that. Um, he's not, he's not really going to go over it. So like his ceiling is modest. Um, Pittman fine. I mean, tough matchup against a good Bucks D, but like, I think he's fine as a bring back. I probably wouldn't play him naked um, without Tampa Bay guys. Like I, I think he's fine as a bring back, bring back in a stack. And then Miles Sanders, like, talented but my god like do you really want to invest in philly running backs like how many times in the last two years has an eagles running back put up a tournament winning score um so like this is some fragile chalk none of them are none of them bad they could all hit but like or some of them could hit some of them will hit but like there's some fragility to all these guys um basically the only one who i can't knock holes in is cmc And Godwin to some extent, although I still think that Godwin's, you know, he's he's more of a floor to like strong median play than a ceiling play to me. Uh, So. It's a fragile chalk week, and those are the best weeks for me, like I love those weeks in tournaments, Um, so I'm with high low. And I see where you're going with this (laughs) when you started talking about cheap running backs um, who could unlock, you know, the multiple high end receivers who do have the slate breaking upside. And I think I know where you're going next. Do you want to go there?
1: Yeah, boy, you know, I got to talk about it before I do. I want to close that loop real quick. So James Robinson has a season high of 21 running back opportunities. Okay. Solid, not spectacular, right? We know that the, um, the Jags have a, Implied Vegas implied team total of 22 points. Great net adjusted line yards matchup, 4.52. The Falcons have allowed 28.1 fantasy points per game to opposing backfields. His touchdown equity is fairly high. He scored um, seven touchdowns in his last seven games. Okay. Can he break the slate? Likely not. Got it. Christian McCaffrey, we talked about, Darrell Henderson hasn't seen more than 16 running back opportunities since week seven. He has only one game all season, greater than 21 same kind of play player situation as James Robinson, Miles Sanders, dude. I don't know what the hell, I don't know if he's getting talked up around the industry. I don't know why people are people really that excited about attacking Miles Sanders because Jordan Howard is out like, okay, dude, like have fun with that one because I will not be going there. If, i'm if if i if you felt like I was talking directly to you when I said that, I apologize. I don't mean to like call anybody stupid for liking Miles Sanders. I will personally not be going there. I don't see the path to a ceiling. I don't see the path to an elevated workload. I expect a rather even split with um uh jeez Boston Scott Boston Scott yeah, Chris Godwin, I think you nailed it X does not carry the top end in the ceiling that we're kind of looking for. Um, with Mike Evans and Rob Gronkowski in the lineup. We've seen over the past two years who are Tom Brady's go-to red zone weapons, Mike Evans and Rob Gronkowski. So um, Godwin has, what, four games of double-digit targets. Three of those came while Rob Gronkowski was out of the lineup. That also lined up when, with when Antonio Brown was also out of the lineup. So again, I started the week all over like Tom Brady to Chris Godwin to um, Rob Gronkowski, that kind of love for me has taken a pretty significant hit with Mike Evans. Cause Mike Evans is like the kind of guy who could catch six balls for 70 yards and two to three touchdowns um, and sap all of the ceiling from Chris Godwin. Enough on that. Uh, Michael Pittman, um, eight of his 11 games, he's seen eight or fewer targets. So, Again, this is not a pass-first offense. We know that Indy has really controlled like seven of their last eight games, uh, so they haven't needed to throw the ball around the field like they kind of did opening the season when their defense wasn't playing as well, when their run game hadn't been get, hadn't gotten going yet. Um, so that's a another tweener. I agree he should be played uh, in conjunction or uh, as part of a game stack there. Rob Gromkowski, I think he's probably the top point per dollar expected tight end on the slate. That said, you know, prior to his injury, uh sorry, I'm going to look it up right here. I think prior to his injury he was like up in the 80 to 90% snap rate range. Let me double check that. Um yeah, so his first two fully healthy games in the season, 88% snap rate, 81% snap rate. He was at 59% last week. So that is notable. That probably caps his Target ceiling somewhere in the 7-8 to eight target range um, outside of that game environment just absolutely going bonkers, cuckoo crazy. Uh, so again, probably best utilized in part of a correlated pairing or a game stack. Um, that, and then the Texans' defense, they've generated 10 turnovers the last two games, five a game. That is absolutely absurd. That is a solid stretch. That said, they have 19 total turnovers, so they have nine total turnovers um, over the rest, over the eight games not, that fell outside of the last two weeks. God, I can't, I speak English good. So, as the chalk pay down defense, I'm probably closer to the okay side than I am like complete fade side, but there are so many paths for this play to fail this week. So keep that in mind. And that probably keeps me uh, siding with the stay away. That's kind of the chalk. That's the rundown, how I'm seeing things. Uh, And let's get into the running back position because I think this is going to be one of the spots where the week is going to be won or lost. And not just because running backs are always the spot where weeks are won and lost, but just because we don't have... Floor, really, at the running back position. Like, it's still riddled with upside. We still have the same ceilings. But the floors, pretty much across the board, take a significant hit this week. Looking at the top, we have Jonathan Taylor against the Bucks, Christian McCaffrey uh, against Miami. So, a, a neutral to negative, pure rushing matchup. But we know with CMC, we can expect 7-10 to 10 targets on most weeks and extreme uh, touchdown upside. So, the upside is still there. I would question his floor a little bit more than I would on a standard week. Austin Eckler against a Denver defense that has really come into their own um, of late. We know Austin Eckler is typically going to see 15 to 17 running back opportunities, somewhere in that range, maybe 15 to 18, 16 to 18, somewhere in that range of running back opportunities, extreme red zone usage. But any player's floor, I don't care if it's Jesus on the field, any player's floor Uh, only seeing 16 to 18 touches at the running back position, is going to have a lower floor than we typically like to see. Najee Harris against Cincinnati, that game is probably going to be played at a snail's pace. So again, like I'm not here saying any of these plays are bad plays. I'm just kind of being devil's advocate a little bit and pointing out the fact that I think a large mistake from the field this year is neglecting On rosters, I I don't think that the field has caught up to that just yet. We have Dalvin Cook uh, against San Francisco. Um, He's being limited to twenty to twenty-two running back opportunities on most weeks. Um, You know, he saw twenty-two rush attempts and four targets uh, last week against Green Bay.
0: His his passing work has kind of vanished too. Not vanished, but like he hasn't had the big spiked week pass involvement that that we're used to seeing from him.
1: Yeah. So I'm not going to go every player down this list, but it's basically meant to, you know, highlight the fact that we don't really know a lot of what's going on, but the field is going to pretend like they know a lot of what's going on this week at the running back position. Just real quick, a couple of notables as well on the lower price guys uh, or medium price guys. Saquon Barkley at 6.3, almost non-existent floor. They have all kinds of moving pieces. Great ceiling. We'll talk about that here shortly. Great ceiling with the offensive coordinator change and the lack of pass catchers on the Giants. James Robinson, we talked about him. Other notables, Darrell Henderson, we talked about him. AJ Dillon, uh, should Aaron Jones miss, is a notable that uh, we can talk about as well. And then you start getting into entirely speculative plays. You got Melvin Gordon. We got Javante Williams, who's gaining steam um, around the industry. Miles Sanders, enough said about him. Um, But we start getting down to these pay-down dudes, and two in particular that really stand out to me as possible difference makers on a week like this where we don't have a lot of certainty. One is Elijah Mitchell at 5.4, coming back, expected to come back, if he does come back, hopefully. Um, he's listed a questionable with rib and his surgically repaired finger, um, but all talk is they expect him to go. Well, what have we seen out of Elijah Mitchell, his you know, last few starts? Against the Rams, that game that they surprisingly dominated, 27 rush attempts. Against Arizona, where they got blown out and were passing all over the, the field, he saw five targets. Okay, so that's a plus. Prior to that week eight against Chicago, 18 rush attempts, popped hundred and scored a touchdown against Indy in a negative game environment or a negative game flow for the Niners still had 18 rush attempts, popped hundred with a touchdown. Okay. What have we seen like from a snap rate perspective when Elijah Mitchell has been healthy? Well, we know that this team has had all kinds of injuries in the backfield. We know that Jermichael Hasty has settled into the pass, uh, pass-catching role when healthy. Outside of him, they have not placed other running backs in a pass-catching role. They've utilized their fullback and Kyle Juszczyk. Okay, well, when Elijah Mitchell is healthy, he's seeing 64, 68, 61, 66, 64, 66% snap rates. Okay, so we pretty much know what we're going to get out of Elijah Mitchell. Modest pass game involvement with most of the running back opportunities on the ground. Well, a matchup against Minnesota is on the docket, and Minnesota is without all four of their defensive linemen that they started the year with. Okay, that's notable as well. Minnesota also gives up... Sorry, apologies while it loads. Minnesota... (laughs) gives up 24.7 fantasy points per game to opposing backfields and just under five yards a carry to opposing running backs. Also notable. So he's one of these guys where where we don't have a lot of certainty. I'm willing to take the additional risk that comes with a yardage and touchdown back when he's priced low, when he's expected to come in with low ownership and when he opens up other areas of my roster. And Elijah Mitchell fits that absolutely to a T home favorite running back, all that good stuff. He is kind of one of those guys I've highlighted as a kind of key to open up a larger portion of my rosters flexibility to be able to pay up for some of these high price guys. I'm going to cover the last one and then let you speak on the running back position. X, Sorry. I've been talking for a while. No worries. The last one is all the way down at 4.3 in Ty Johnson. This one. Takes a pretty, sig- <laughs> yeah, I think this is who you were referring to earlier. Mm-hmm. This one takes a little bit more leap of faith. Why do I say that? Well, we haven't seen Ty Johnson really be a leading contributor of this offense since all the way back in like week one and two. Well, well what are we missing with the absence of Michael Carter? We're missing 72% snap rate, 70% snap rate, 58% snap rate, 52% snap rate, 52, 51. So we're missing the lead back from this offense. He was also, oh, by the way, heavily involved in the past game. And behind Ty Johnson now, they have Tevin Broken Coleman and LaMichael Pirine. Those are, that is basically their running back depth. So look at Tevin Coleman's entire season he's seen a season high snap rate of 28 percent. that came last week he has been in and out of the lineup due to injury and he has basically been sparingly used both through the run game and through the pass game so what does that mean that means empty snaps so he's on the field and he's not getting the football okay all that kind of comes together to me to increase the chances of ty johnson stepping into the vacated Michael Carter role. So anywhere between 60 to 72% of the uh, running back snap rates, probably directly leading to that same rate of running back opportunities, maybe slightly more, because we know Tevin Coleman has been playing a little bit more empty snaps. If that is the case, at 4.3, and again, highlight, asterisk, underline, bold, italicize, if, in that statement, but if Michael Car- or if if Ty Johnson steps into that role at only four point three, for what he can do to the rest of the roster, highly highly interesting to me this week. All right, X, what are your thoughts of running back, dude?
0: Yeah, I will say like I, I've been playing Elijah Mitchell whenever he's healthy. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's he's yardage and touchdown back, but he's cheap, uh, and the ceiling he brings for his price is very reasonable and. The 49ers run offense is just like it's it's unlike most others in the NFL when they have uh, use and um, and Kittle healthy, because those two are just two of the best run blockers in the NFL. So, you know, we know the roles there for him. We know the volume should be there for him, the matchup like the 49ers can run on anyone um, when Kittle and use are there. So I love Mitchell. Ty Johnson, I agree with you. Like, I think that there's some fragility to the play. Like, I don't think he'd be a cash game play um, because, you know, you're 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 having to sort of hypothesize where his usage would be. But. He's projecting about nine percent ownership. If, you know, if it was posted today that he will be the lead back and, you know, hands down, he's going to get 70 percent plus of the running back opportunities, um, what would his ownership be? At 4,300, like that's the question. I think we have to we have to ask um, because I think it would be a lot higher. It would be like he'd be one of the chalkiest plays in the slate, and so uh, so I love I love there I love that play because you can essentially you can get him at sort of an ownership discount, right? Because you're willing if you're willing to embrace the volatility, and if you're right, then you end up getting one of the strongest plays on the entire slate uh, at a, you know, at nine percent ownership instead of like 25 percent ownership. Um, a couple others I want to point out, and so these are these are riskier than the ones that Hilo mentioned, um, to be sure. But I think you could poke around a little bit at the Texans, um, the Texans run game. Just going, you know, Texans. Like I'll, I'll always pick on the Jets. Like I will always pick on the Jets D. And so you know, Tyrod Taylor is projecting as one of the highest in quarterbacks of the week. Um, And Brandon Cooks is projecting as one of the highest in wide receivers of the week. And so if you believe that the tech, if you want to bet or rather on on the Texans scoring on the ground instead of in the air, you know, Philip Lindsay's gone. Uh, I think they're down to really just David Johnson, Rex Burkhead. And I guess they signed Royce Freeman. Um, So, you know, if you want to take a bet on Johnson or Burkhead, but more likely Johnson, um, I think that you can get, you know, a lot of upside, horrible floor. Um, You know, they could just destroy your roster, but um, but a lot of upside at, you know, an incredibly cheap price. I think you can also poke at the Titans' run game, and this is a similar situation where we don't know who the lead back is. Where I think you know we would have thought it would be without Jeremy McNichols, I think we would have thought it would be uh, Donta Foreman, um, who's kind of the last man standing from their like early their early season stable of running backs with Henry gone, uh, Jeremy McNichols gone, and Adrian Peterson now released. Uh, Dante Foreman seems like he'd be the last guy left. Um, but then Dantrell Hilliard came out of nowhere last week and, and caught, like, I think what he get? like, he got like seven carries and like eight or 10 targets. Uh, one second. Let me, let me go look up his target. Yeah,
1: eight catches on 10 targets.
0: <laughs> yeah, so ridiculous, right? Like, absolutely ridiculous workload. Um, and so, you know, he's popping. The question is, who's the lead back you know hilliard's more of a has been more of a pass catching back in his career so was his role uh, so big because of the situation in which the titans found themselves where they were just down early um and significantly the whole game struggling to move the ball um or is you know is Foreman the lead back and hilliard's really like is hilliard really the pass catching back or is hilliard uh past foreman in the depth chart and he's now the lead back and so similarly this is a situation where if we had clarity of who the lead back was, that lead back would be hugely owned because Hilliard's 4,600 and Foreman's 4,800. And it's a positive matchup. I mean, you know, they're underdogs against the Patriots, uh, obviously, but it's a positive matchup on the ground. The Patriots are really hard to pass against. They're much easier to run against. And so – you know, if we knew who the lead back was going to be, that lead back would be quite heavily owned. But we don't know who the lead back was going to be. And so they're projecting for minimal ownership. You know, uh Hilliard's looking like the more popular play at about 10%, and Foreman's completely unowned. And I think Hilliard's probably the safer play because he has shown that he's going to be the guy they use if they fall behind and they're likely to fall behind. Um, so I think Hilliard's a Hilliard's a, a reasonable play, uh, and Foreman is more of a like YOLO MME only play. Um, but I think you could You know, you can YOLO if you want to YOLO. Uh, And then there's a part of me and this this could just be pure frustration on my part uh, for my poor dead best ball lineups. um, But I think Hilo knows I'm going to mention now, which is Mike Davis. And it's like, I don't know what has gone on with him this year. I have no idea. Um, But like the Falcons, they they keep, uh, you know, it it keeps being someone else instead of Mike Davis. And then the someone else keeps getting hurt. And so like it was, you know, what, Quadri, 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 quadri Bolson, um was the most recent one uh, who kind of came out of nowhere. And.
2: How he's hurt again, I believe here. Um, but I think that you, if you're doing MME. At
0: least, I think you can at least consider pool. I also would say we have like, watch the news carefully for anything about Aaron Jones tonight. Um, because if Aaron Jones plays like he was expected to miss, I think two weeks, uh, at least two weeks. And, you know, he's, he's practicing this week, but the Packers have their buy next week. And so it's like, Do they really want to risk him putting him out there? Um, this week when they're buys next week, like why not wait and let him, you know, get fully healthy? And so there's a possibility here that Aaron Jones is questionable, and we don't get news. And then after, and this is an afternoon game, and then after uh, the early games lock, we get news that Aaron Jones is out, which would immediately make Dylan one of the strongest plays on the slate at any position. It'd be the same play he was last week, right? He's he's 5900. He and he'd be projecting for the lion's share of the work. He got almost. All the running back opportunities last week um and his price you know i think it went down i think it was 6k last week right and so like that would be a tremendous opportunity for him um and and he was ownership would be kept much much lower because because of the uncertainty around aaron jones and also like aaron jones himself if he does play uh is would be a a late swap Hail Mary play that you can consider um, if you're if you're playing from behind and you have a roster that looks like it needs, you know, it needs a Hail Mary play to make it. Um, Aaron Jones could be considered there because if he does come back, like there's probably no reason for the Packers to bring him back unless they're confident that he's like good to go. Like, why would they bring him back and let him play, you know, 20 snaps or 30 snaps? Uh, or at least, so I'm, you know, telling myself. Um, and so, like, uh, there's at least, you know, there's some upside there. There's some ceiling there. And almost no ownership um, if he if he's back, and and if you need that YOLO play, I
1: love it, man. The last thing I'll mention at the running back position is to another injury situation to pay attention to is the Patriots' backfield. Uh, both Damian Harris and Ramondre Stevenson are currently questionable. It's an early game, so we should get some news. Uh, what's going on and that could be just some more bill Belichick, you know, injury report games. Uh, cause they, they typically, you know, their season average of players listed on the injury report is like 13, but, um, yeah, keep an eye on the new England backfield, pretty poor on paper matchup against the Tennessee, Tennessee defense that is entirely past funnel but when you consider the likeliest game flow of that game they gain increased uh yeah increased um, whatever words yeah you get the point <laughs> <laughs> dude i increased I'm thing about, with the stuff the stuff and you play play them if they're out and stuff
0: yeah oh the man man that dude's a monster if he gets oh, man i'm i am i am hoping i would love some late news about damian harris being out yeah, and
1: both of those guys. Um, it would be really interesting if both of them were out, because then um, the field would be entirely scrambling to try and dissect what the heck's going to go on with that backfield. So I don't even know what happened. Uh, just have a monitor pay attention I hate to JJ Taylor. And, yeah, I know. But right? Brandon
0: Bolden isn't going to carry the ball twenty times. I don't think. I don't even
1: know. No, he's their pass game guy. Yeah, it's uh, pay attention to that because it's a lot of moving pieces there. Um, could be anyway. All right, that's kind of the running back position. Again, um, a lot higher emphasis than normal, I think, on the running back position this week. And that's why we kind of spent some time on it, uh, trying to talk through the position as a whole. All righty then. The next kind of like funnel of ownership or from the field um, is really at the tight end position. Um, And it's really, it's kind of on either extremes of pricing. So Kyle Pitts is expected to be highly owned at 6.1 as the second highest priced uh, tight end. And then Rob Gronkowski um, at 4.4, so kind of in this mid-range of tight end pricing, uh, expected to be extremely highly owned as well. X, I'm going to throw it over to you to talk about the macro of this position, and then um, I'll chime in with uh,
2: my thoughts here.
1: didn't work all right I'll talk about tight end real quick so Kyle Pitts Rob Gronkowski these are the two top plays on paper from this game uh, or from the slate Kyle Pitts we know that opposing defenses have really looked to take him out of the game as really the only viable skilled position player with any talent remaining on that offense well do we expect Jacksonville to be able to really eliminate, you know, a team's top threat? I don't know. Probably lean closer to no. So Kylo Pitts is extremely interesting to me. That said, he is likelier to succeed if Atlanta is being forced to chuck the ball. They have still trying to figure out um, you know, how to most efficiently efficiently run their offense. So this is still a team that is Really struggling to find their their mojo, and every time it looks like they do, they lose an offensive player. So like they were finally like cooking, then Calvin Ridley um, took his time off that he needed. Then they're finally cooking again, and then Cordarrelle Patterson gets hurt, and so this team is like really struggling to put the pieces together when they're handed different pieces and try and make a puzzle out of them. That said, like Kyle Pitts is the likeliest. Place for them to succeed this week. And we know that he carries one of the higher ceilings at the tight end position. With Gronk, probably the top point per dollar play on paper at the position this week. I talked about his snap rate not being where it was pre-injury last week. That's likely going to limit his targets, you know, in that seven to eight target range, which is eight targets is his season high on the year. He scored four touchdowns those first two games, uh, inflating, obviously, his box scores. Uh, But this is a player that we know, extreme connection with his quarterback and Tom Brady, extreme usage near the end zone in the red zone. And we expect Tampa Bay, they have the highest Vegas implied team total on the slate at more than four touchdowns. So if the Bucs are throwing the football, if the Bucs are expected to score four touchdowns, Highly likely that Grog gets into the end zone this week. Those are kind of the two top plays. And from a combined ownership on just those two players, Rob Gronkowski at 19.2. And Kyle Pitts is actually checking in at about 10% ownership right now. But I expect that number to increase. That said, if Kyle Pitts does, you know, when ownership updates on Sunday morning, If Kyle Pitts is still in this sub 10% ownership range, high, high interest for me. And that is likely from the field prioritizing the salary at other positions because the field just doesn't like paying up at the tight end position. That's kind of the overall state of the slate at the tight end position. There's a few guys that I think carry greater upside than their expected ownership is going to dictate this week. 1 is Noah Fant at 4.6 so priced right around Rob Gronkowski at 4.4. What does Noah Fant have going for him? Well, for one, the entire pass catching core of Denver is healthy, which is a knock to his expected volume. That said, if Denver is forced through the air through game environment or otherwise, the path of least resistance is through the tight end position. Against a Chargers unit, who is basically built from the back forward and outside in, meaning they look to take away splash plays on the perimeter, they look to take away splash plays deep, and they kind of filter from a, a natural standpoint production through the tight end over the middle of the field. So if Fan if the Broncos are forced to throw, if you know, if the Chargers punch in too early scores, Denver goes down. Again, unlikely, but from a game flow and game environment perspective, could happen. We've seen Fant has two games with double-digit targets, one at 10 and one at 11, and he carries high upside in this matchup on that offense uh, should he see double-digit looks here. So he's expected to carry low ownership. X, if you're listening, I hope you don't throw up in your mouth uh, when I mention this guy, but he might be my favorite tight end play on the entire slate, and that is perennial fade boy Evan Ingram. (laughs) I am actually pretty excited for Evan Ingram this week. What have we seen? Evan Ingram has run majority of his routes within five yards of the line of scrimmage. That has been under his time with um, Ole Clapper as his offensive coordinator. So can things change? Will things change? Like I don't know. But we know he's an athletic specimen. We know that the Giants are struggling with their pass catcher's health. We also know that their two healthiest pass catchers are both field stretchers slash deeper threats. So this is an interesting, like kind of all the stars are aligning for me with Evan Ingram. And then, oh, by the way, consider the matchup. Philly is built similar to the Chargers on defense where they look, they're built from the back forward and the outside in. They look to take away the splash plays. They have two lock-ish down cornerbacks. Um, that can thrive in both zone and man coverage, and they look to filter things over the middle of the field. Well, if we still have Darius Slayton and Kenny Galladay who are capable of stretching the field, where are they opening up? They're opening up the gap between the second and third levels of the defense, so between the linebackers and the secondary. That is where I'm hoping Evan Ingram will be better utilized this week. Uh, under Freddie Kitchens as offensive coordinator, your thoughts on that? I hope I didn't make you vomit.
0: Yeah, I was just cleaning. I was just cleaning up. Uh, <laughs> no, it's interesting, right? Like Evan Ingram is one of these guys where it seemed like he's always had the talent, and for whatever reason, doesn't sort of materialized into consistent production. And like, I'm not a football expert, right? Like I don't claim to be, I don't know why that might be right, but it stands to reason that there is at least a possibility that a new like play calling scheme could unlock some of the upside. If you listen to anyone who knows football talk about Edmund Ingram, they always say, oh, he's super athletic, blah, blah, blah. So, okay. Like, so why isn't that translating to success? Right? Like, and You know, it seems like there's some upside in there. And so the question is, like, what does it take to unlock that upside? And so I don't know. Right. Like, I I think I do think that if you I mean, just looking like I'm a data guy. And if you just look at the data, I think he looks like a reasonably strong play. Um, I do think that, you know, we know that the matchup is really positive for him. We know the Giants uh, are still missing some, um, you know, some some key offensive weapons. And so. Yeah, I can see it. I mean, like, I don't want to like Evan Ingram, man. Um, but, like, if you look at the pricing and you look at the projections, which, you know, I think is my starting point, um, like, I think, you know, he he projects uh, reasonably... Com- he projects very competitively to the guys around him, right? He like, he pro- I have projected for more points than Tyler Conklin, who's 100, who's, who's his closest direct comparison, um, projected for a lot more than CJ Uzoma, um, projected for more than Tyler Higbee, who's just a little bit priced a little above him. So yeah, I mean, I, I can get on board with it. I don't like it. I'll, I'll you know, hold my nose. But I mean, I've played, <laughs> I've played a lot of plays I don't like over the course of my DFS right? career, right? Um, tight end is really interesting in general, though, just because it's like, it's so clustered um <clears throat> where like if you look at engram or conklin on the cheap end and you go up to like goddard there's just a whole bunch of tight ends that are all viable that are all priced in that range right let me like i'm just gonna go count real quick how many there are um that i would consider viable so you've got goddard fant uh henry i guess i don't know he seems to score touchdowns every week um gronk Friarmouth, higby arnold engram conklin like that's just this whole pile of tight ends. and i I don't honestly have a great way of differentiating between them. Like, I think, you know, Gronk is a strong play, although the injury concern is I think is is valid and real um around his playing time. I think, uh, I love Dallas Goddard and has been waiting for the explosion game. And like last week, he, he kind of, he could have scored two touchdowns. He actually scored a touchdown, um, but it was, he was called down at the one and they didn't challenge. Um, or if they challenged, he would have gotten the touchdown. They just kind of snuck it in um, with Hertz. And then he got another call back on offensive pass interference by someone out by uh, Devonta Smith. And um, I mean, like, yeah, like that whole range is like, is really close Um, And and so my normal approach there is like play the game stacks, right? I'll play the guys I'm stacking around. Um, But yeah, I can get behind Engram. I also, it's like, I love, I love when I can play the guys who have the highest ceiling on the slate at very modest ownership. Um, So I'll always like, I'll always want to be overweight on positions like Pitts and Kittle because those guys have, those guys have ceilings that can just put the position away. Like they can outscore the entire position by 10 plus points if they have a good game. And so like, those are, those are guys I always want to be overweight on.
1: I love it, man. Last parting love for Evan Ingram. Kyle Rudolph is doubtful. (laughs) Caden Smith is out. So, Evan Ingram played 90% of the offensive snaps last week. That led the team out of all pass catchers. He has been in a route on 96% of his offensive snaps on passing plays. So, we know he's going to be running routes. We know that the, there's a ton of injuries behind him at his own position. We know that there's a ton of injuries with Sterling Shepard and Kadarius Toney. And Kadarius Toney being out is really the one that is of the most importance to us because their usage, where they're being used on the field, kind of overlaps a little bit. So all that being said, the only tight end behind him is a guy named Chris Meyerick. And he is in a route on 42% of his snaps that are passing plays. So I expect Evan Ingram to be on the field. I expect the Giants to up their tight end, uh, their 12 personnel usage uh, in this game, primarily with Evan Ingram and Chris Meyerrick as the only healthy two tight ends, because they really just don't have anybody else to jump throw on the field. They have... Colin Johnson, um, who has been on and off the practice squad this year. Um, they have, you know, CJ board is on the IR Dante Pettis is on the IR. John Ross is questionable. So they just, they have all these injuries and no one really to fill the pass catching role. So I like him to be on the field a lot. I like him to be running routes a lot. And I like the giants to be basically be forced to throw a lot here against Philly. All right. Enough of that. Evan Ingram, good guy, great dick. got it. Uh, sweet. What position are do you want go I, to next? I invited him over Thanksgiving. Said he was busy. <laughs> yeah, he's a good guy, right? All right, man. Let's go to quarterback next. Actually, yeah. So I'm gonna throw it over to you again. Macro perspective of the quarterback <laughs> position.
0: It it looks. Uh, it's interesting. Okay, it's just interesting. It's a it's a barbell week um, in that the highest owned quarterbacks actually no it's not sorry let me let me take that back like, the quarterback ownership is is pretty clustered more so than normal and that there are four quarterbacks projecting over 10% ownership and quarterback ownership is usually pretty spread out so it's kind of surprising to me to see it clustered as it is um those four quarterbacks are Tom Brady who is the most expensive quarterback on the slate and carries the highest projection of any quarterback on the slate? Um, it's Justin Herbert, who's kind of mid-priced and and arguably just a little like too cheap, I think, for his like he's he's at a very tempting price at sixty six hundred, especially on a slate where we don't have any of our like or the majority of our sort of rushing cheat code quarterbacks. Um, and then we've got two cheapies in Cam Newton, who DraftKings somewhat surprisingly did not price up, um, and he's fifty six hundred, and he you know remember last week. Uh, it looked like Cam was going to be super popular, and then the Panthers' coaches said something to the effect of, "Like, well, we may not play him every snap. We think we, we think PJ Walker's good." Blah blah blah. Um, and it turns out that was a lie because uh, coaches lie, and Cam didn't play every snap. And then they've got Tyrod Taylor because I guess you pick on the Jets, right? Like, which I'm kind of always okay picking on the Jets, so I get. Um, and it's but it's just it's rare. For th- for four quarter for there to be that many quarterbacks projecting over ten percent ownership, and you know it's a, we're, it's a slightly short slate, um, but it's not that short. So that's really it's it's strange to me that we're in this spot, um, but it's interesting because I think that that offers us a lot of leverage, right? Like none of those quarterbacks are bad plays, um, but I think it means that we're getting there's a lot of ownership on or sorry there's a lack of ownership on some quarterbacks that I think bring either strong price considered ceilings or just strong raw ceilings. Like uh, Matthew Stafford, um, it was kind of all like an MVP tour and he kind of, the wheels kind of fell off a bit recently. Um, but we know he's, we know he's got the talent. We know he has the supporting cast uh, and he's in a matchup where he's likely going to have to chuck a lot. Um, I think, I and mean, it's going to be a slow paced game, but like the ceiling is still there for Stafford. Um, I think you've got, Uh, At the the, Jalen Hurts always has a massive floor and ceiling um, because he just runs in every touchdown it seems, Um, and then you've got some other cheap quarterbacks who I think you know when you're looking at the cheap guys like the six K and under you're like you're thinking like what's the chance for 303 right 300 passing yard three touchdowns that's 27 DraftKings points they hit it on the nose Um, which you know for if you're six K and under that's an over four X multiplier which is delightful and so you know you've got Carson Wentz. Uh, in a pass-funnel matchup against the Bucs where he's going to be throwing a ton and likely trying to catch up. You've got Teddy Bridgewater against a banged-up Chargers defense on the road. Um, You've got Matt Ryan against a Jags defense that has been pretty atrocious all year. Uh, You've got Trevor Lawrence against an Atlanta defense that has been pretty atrocious all year. You've got um, Mac Jones against the banged up Titans defense where he's not likely to throw a ton unless they force him to. You've got Cousins at San Francisco and Jimmy Garoppolo at San Francisco in one of the best game environments in the slate. And none of these guys are attracting any ownership. And so, like, I don't know which one of those guys is going to hit. Right. Right. I can't predict that, but what I can tell, what I can say is I think that whole list of names I just mentioned, and actually I'll throw Danny Jones in there as well. in his new coaching regime, you know, he's a guy who's been up and down throughout his career, but he's definitely shown ceiling. He's had Danny Jones has multiple games of 30 plus fantasy points. So, you know, he's capable of it. And, you know, more than one of those guys is likely to have a really strong game um, and no one's on them. And I would argue that like Tyrod Taylor is a strong floor play I mean, the Jets are just atrocious. Um, I question if he has a 30 point ceiling. Um, Cam Newton, I similarly question if he has a 30 point ceiling at this point in his career. Uh, I think it's unlikely. Brady and Herbert are great. Um, I have nothing I have nothing to say bad against either of them. They're awesome. Uh, other than Herbert has a matchup against Denver, which is, you know, that doesn't, doesn't mean he can't hit a ceiling, but I think it lowers the likelihood of it. So, again, like, I like slates where things are spread out. I like slates where I think there's some fragility in the chalk, and I like slates where I can get, you know, what, what I consider really strong plays at low ownership, instead of having to dip into like much shakier plays at low ownership. And I think there's just some really great stack like QB and just stacking options coming in at at almost surprisingly low ownership. And the the king for me there, the the best the best slate the best spot for me there to me is San Francisco Minnesota. And this just fits that formula that you've listened to this show regularly. You've heard me talk about, which is I like targeting uh, I like targeting areas and teams where there's a fair bit of ownership on the skill position players and none on the quarterbacks. And so, like Dalvin Cook's projecting for a a decent amount of ownership, right? Like I think ten or twelve percent. Debo Samuel's projecting for a a healthy amount of ownership. Brandon Ayuk is projecting for a a healthy amount of ownership. For I don't know what's wrong with the Vikings. For some reason, like no one plays their receive, even though they're awesome. Um, but like we've got a fair bit of ownership on the San Francisco side of this game, but no one's stacking it. Uh, Kirk Cousins is like two percent, and Jimmy G is like five percent. So like those are the kind of positions that I love targeting for game stacks um, because essentially like what. What that data is telling me is people are seeing a lot to like in this game, but they're for some reason hesitant to go all in with a stack. They're playing a lot of the players from the game, but they're not stacking it. And so, like, I think that the way to the way to play that is either to avoid it um, or to to go all in and actually stack that game. And that's kind of, that's where I'm very much leaning with with Minnesota
2: SF.
1: I absolutely love it. Let me sum up the quarterback position, how I think it should be played this week. Cam Newton is without a doubt, hands down your cash game quarterback as the quarterback who is most missed priced, particularly considering a matchup against Miami when, oh, by the way, you have Christian McCaffrey and DJ Moore on your team. He gives you a solid floor with his rushing upside and his rushing touchdown expectancy. And I think the point per dollar ceiling is probably one of the highest on the slate. Cash games, Cam Newton is your guy. Play him naked, play him with CMC, play him with DJ Moore. Whatever you see fit there, he basically can't go wrong. Cash games can. All right. The second thing I'll bring up is, okay, so the highest game total on the slate is the Tampa Bay Indie game. Tom Brady obviously expected to garner ownership. And then what? Chris Carson Wentz sub 5%. Okay, got it. Second highest game total on the slate. What game is it? Minnesota, San Francisco. So we have Kirk Cousins, 2% ownership. We have Jim Agropolo 5% ownership. Third highest game total on the slate, Green Bay uh, Rams. Aaron Rodgers, 2% owned. Matthew Stafford, sub 2% owned. So mm-hmm. something's not adding up in my mind. And all four of those, or yeah, all four of those guys add Carson once. Uh, so five of those guys. In the expected three top game environments on the slate, are all absolutely stellar GPP plays this week. Almost no point in trying to pick which one it hits, but one of them is likely to hit for a very, very solid score this week, and none of them are overly prohibitive in cost. We have the two quarterbacks in the Rams Packers game that are 7.1 and 6.9 for Matthew Stafford and Aaron Rodgers, respectively. Outside of that, Kirk Cousins is 6.3. Jimmy Garoppolo is, oh God, what is he, 5.7. Tom Brady obviously is the highest priced quarterback on the slate, 7.6. And everybody else in those three expected high uh, Vegas game total games are expected to come in both with low ownership and alter the way that your roster is built away from the field. So love those calls. That's how I'm seeing the quarterback position on this slate. And I will be attacking those three game environments fairly heavily this week. Anything else parting shots at the quarterback, dude? Not
3: for
0: me, my friend.
1: All right. So I was saving the kind of game environment talk until we hit quarterbacks to kind of highlight that point to hopefully give that like, oh, shit factor about why are these game environments so, you know, expected. To be the best on the slate, but the quarterbacks in those game environments are not drawing the level of ownership that we would expect. Um, That's pretty much it. Do you see we're going to shift gears a little bit real quick. Do you see any other game environments where you want to be attacking at a higher rate than the field seems to be this week?
0: Um, The main ones for me are, I think... San Francisco Vikings. uh, Yeah. Minnesota, San Francisco, sorry, Minnesota at San Francisco, Um, Rams at Packers, Indy Tampa, obviously. Um, And then the kind of like off the board ones that I'm interested in are uh, I'm interested in Danny Jones and the giants. Um, And I don't even, I don't feel like you even need to bring back there necessarily. Um, Although you can also play the other way with Jalen hurts. Like I like Jalen hurts to Goddard and then, um, and then to bring back like Saquon or, uh i won't say ingram because that puts me in double te range which you know everyone would jump on me for um and then uh and then i kind of actually this this is a vomitous stack but my vomit stack of the week is zach wilson um kind of going the like flipping the script on the houston thing because i think that like if zach wilson has a good game you sink the tyrod shock to some extent if he outperforms tyrod you also sink the massive uh texans d chalk and i think zach wilson You know, he's like one of those like chucker quarterbacks where there's a lot of risk, but there's also a lot of upside if he connects and he has good receiving weapons. So
1: Yeah, I like that play a good deal as well. (laughs) How many times can
0: Hilo and I play jet stacks? Is the question.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Not enough to stop being made fun of for it, that's for sure. (laughs) But the also but what's actually pretty big news out of that side of that game is Corey Davis was about an hour ago listed as doubtful. So he was expected to fight through his uh, groin injury that he picked up, I believe in practice um, earlier this week. Yeah. It was in individual drills, right. That he picked up the groin injury like on Tuesday or Wednesday. I didn't
0: see that news. Oh man.
1: Yeah. So Corey Davis is doubtful. So what does that mean? It means Elijah Moore season continues. Most likely we're going to see Elijah Moore, um, play heavier perimeter snaps um, and he is really the alpha of this offense as a rookie um, with Corey Davis out we're likely to see Jameson Crowder play the slot so that'll whenever he's on the field in three wide receiver uh, sets we're gonna see Elijah Moore shift to the perimeter and we're likely to see Keelan Cole Jeff Smith this kind of smattering of we don't know who's going to fill that kind of wide receiver three role but it's likely to be kind of this you know timeshare between keelan cole and jeff smith uh denzel mims is still on the covid list um after i think what is this his this will be his second week missed uh third week sorry he last played week nine so denzel mims is struggling with the covid's uh, so that leaves Keelan Cole and Jeff Smith likely uh, to see snaps on the perimeter opposite of Elijah Moore. Tight end position, we know Tyler Croft is out for likely the season with his God. What does he have? Like a contu a lung rip or tear or something crazy? I don't know. Uh, something, something horrible. More, yeah, something that sounds not fun. Like I wouldn't just do it on a Thursday. Um, But yeah, that leaves Ryan Griffin, um, as the other main pass catcher that also goes into kind of strengthening my interest in Ty Johnson. We talked about him earlier, but that does give increased credence to the idea of Elijah Moore continuing this streak that he has seen over the previous four games of elevated production. So I like that call a good bit in my mind. This New York Jets-Houston Texans game has a much wider range of potential outcomes as far as game environment and game flow goes than I think the field is giving credit for. When you see an offense like Houston, that their defense is the highest owned overall entity on the slate. And then their quarterback, Tyrod Taylor, is expected to garner top four ownership at the quarterback position. This is a team... Where both of those cannot be truths. Like Both of those plays cannot succeed in the same game. They are just not built that way. We've talked about the you know, old and decrepit nature of this coaching staff. They are rooted in the olden days of the NFL where they are going to grind the clock. They're going to win in the snow. Like, bro, you play in Houston. It's not snowing. Um, anyway, I digress a little bit. But that tells me that the field is adopting some level of certainty with how this game flow and game script is going to play out. And there really, really isn't like, how are the Houston, how is the Houston defense going to succeed? They're going to succeed if they continue to match their previous two weeks turnover rate. If they're creating four to five turnovers, like they have the last two weeks, they are going to be the top point per dollar defense on the slate. How is Tyrod Taylor succeeding? Tyrod Taylor is succeeding. If the jets basically force him to be more aggressive through the air. And that is, again, just coaching tendencies and and knowing kind of how this team is run and built. So, both of those things largely cannot be true in the same game. And the field is saying that I know how this game is going to play out and I am going to bet on one of those sides or the other. That said, there's also interesting game scenarios and game environments where neither of those two is true and neither of those two succeed. There's also game scenarios where this is a 1714 game and houston doesn't generate any turnovers or maybe one turnover so things to think about with this game i would personally it is for me it is a ty johnson or elijah moore or game stack or stay away if that makes sense so thinking through that i like ty johnson in a vacuum on his own as a standalone I like Elijah Moore in a vacuum on his own as a standalone. Outside of that, I would be game stacking this game or staying away because it has a very, very wide range of potential outcomes. That's yeah, my thoughts on like, that game.
0: There's just a lot of ownership on this game, and it's one of the the worst game environments on the slate. And, you know, I mean, like it could hit like any game can hit, right? Like or it could or it could hit just by virtue of hitting you know of um price considered sorry price considered hit right like a lot of these guys are really cheap and so they don't need the 40 point ceiling um but i feel like the, the the amount of ownership on this game does not like on the houston side specifically uh there's just a like there's a lot of perceived certainty uh playing one of the worst teams in the nfl and that is that is incentivized in every possible way to lose this game like Houston, like the Houston coaching staff, the Houston, you know, the brass, they don't want to win. And, you know, I know the players on the field, like they want like the players on the field are going to play their hearts out. They want to win. That's what that's what players do. Um, but like, it's just it's hard for me to get super behind Houston here when I know that like they just they they're, they're in full tank mode. They're an they're one of the worst teams in the NFL and they don't want to win the game. It's like how much how much exposure do I really want to have to, to a team that is in that Situation, and for me, the answer is not very much.
1: I love it, love it, love it, love it. Houston and the Jets are also towards the bottom of the league in red zone touchdown rates. So all this good stuff um, basically leads us to a an I don't know situation, but the field knows. Uh, so do with that what you will. I kind of laid out my thought process, how I'm seeing that game. Uh, Yeah, that's all we'll say on that. The last game environment that I think uh, Bears mention here is Atlanta at Jacksonville. Obviously, we know Jacksonville is entirely broken. We've seen some coach speak out of Jacksonville, Camp Jacksonville this week, uh, particularly revolving around LaVisca Chenault Jr. Um, Basically, coaches coming out and saying like, oh shit, we just realized we have this like super dynamic, talented weapon. We need to get him the ball more. Uh, we're like, all of us are over here being like, yeah, no shit. Urban, like that should have happened like a long time ago. Uh, anyway, Leviska Chenault, coaches are saying they want to get him involved more in the offense. We obviously know that James Robinson, uh, we've talked about him in depth. And then, oh, by the way, they still have this dude named Marvin Jones Jr. who started the season off extremely hot and has tailed off as this offense has struggled. So we also know that this team overall is not a high scoring offense. They have scored at most 23 points on the season. They have three games the entire year where they've scored three touchdowns. That's noteworthy. Okay, And then on the other side, obviously both of these teams have very poor defenses. So this is another wide range of outcomes game where if the field is going to, I'll call it feign certainty. If the field is going to pretend that they have all this certainty around this game, I'll look for ways where I can attack it in different ways than the field. So a Matt Ryan is expected to garner zero ownership. Matt Ryan with Kyle Pitts. Uh, bring it back with LaVisca Chennault or um, James Robinson. Easy way to generate leverage on the field because the field is likely picking onesies, twosies from this game and not game stacking it. So that covers like if this game succeeds, if this game fails, is a complete stay away. If Cordero Patterson misses, now the Jags really only have one player to key on on the defensive side and they're not likely going to push the envelope when they have the ball. So that's kind of, it's kind of a, an either, or it's, it's a barbell approach as X would call it for me. It's a overstack, game stack correlated pairings or complete stay away uh, from me personally. Any thoughts on that game environment?
0: Hooray for barbells. No, I pretty what much agree, else? right? Like I'm the I, the wonder is I'm okay playing Kyle Pitts um naked and not not without without any correlation from that game. Um just because I think he has the highest raw ceiling of any tight end um on the slate. But like other than that, like I don't think I'd play Patterson. I wouldn't play Marvin Jones um without or any or anyone. Uh, I, play, I might be Dan Arnold, but like, I think for the most part I'm with you. And like one of the things that I feel like, and it's funny because I just talked about playing the Jets. Um, I think one of the, the sort of leaks in my game sometimes is uh, an affinity for playing players from shitty teams just to put it bluntly. Um, and I think there's a place for that, right? Like there is a place for that Hell, Like Michael Carter from the jets won someone a million dollars a couple, a few weeks ago. Uh, Elijah Moore has won people very large amounts of money very recently. So like there, there's a place to use players from these like bad teams when there's a high degree of uh, certainty of where the ball is going, like a narrow distribution of volume. And when the matchup makes sense um, and when ownership makes sense, I don't like playing Guys from bad teams at really high ownership, which which is kind of why I'm like shying away from Brandon Cooks and uh, Tyrod Taylor this week. But when you can get guys on bad teams, but where the where the volume distribution is narrow, which like fits Atlanta, um, and where the matchup is good, and where they're not owned, um, I'm on board with that. So like, I'm trying to like figure out sort of how to. Get away from my affinity for players and shitty teams without just kind of xing them off entirely, which I think would be a mistake, but just trying to get smarter about when to play uh, when to play the guys on the dubious teams and when to uh, when to not so that's that's something I'm working on for my own game, but
2: yeah I think
1: that also has to do with a little bit of the level two game theory that we've kind of alluded to uh, throughout the season. Um, I think Todd summed this up in the most digestible manner that I have heard. And I spoke to him before the podcast and he kind of put it as, Hey, you know, like three or four years ago, I won a ton of money by playing shitty offenses against shitty defenses that Mm -hmm. you can't really gain the same level of leverage now because the field is privy to that. And the field is doing that. So that kind of goes to how X was saying like, Hey, these are, teams and offenses where i would much rather take a shot take a stand if they're expected to garner low ownership and that kind of clicked for me anyway in in my mind to be able to relay that information in a digestible manner uh hopefully it does the same for somebody listening
0: yeah that's Um, a really good way to sum it up i'll say like I've, i've said like i say something a lot that is uh somewhat similar i think which is you want to play high you want to play highly volatile plays at low ownership not high ownership and uh players on shitty teams are inherently high highly volatile plays because they have they have great they have risk of just the entire team failing um and and dragging them down right you know dra- dragging down the entire offensive environment of the game and so that's one for me is like you know like and that's similar like so have you have you brandon cooks that way have you tired taylor that way uh, I view Houston defense that way. I view Miles Sanders that way. Like Miles Sanders, if he was going to be two percent owned, I'd happily play some of him. But if he's one of the highest owned plays of the week, I feel there's a huge amount of uncertainty in his role and in where he, you know, and how much work he's going to get. And so, like, that's another one for me where it's like, I'd happily play Miles Sanders at low ownership. But if he's going to be super owned, like, why would I? Why would I go there? So yeah, like that's that's a mantra I repeat a lot: is you know, low uh, volatile plays at low ownership,
2: not at high ownership.
1: I love it, man. Uh, I don't, I don't always follow to- my advice. I should get <laughs> yeah, better at that. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Hashtag me too. Um, sweet. Any other game environments that you want to talk about before we clean up these positions?
0: I don't think so. I think we've covered all the ones I'm primarily interested in.
1: Last thing I'll say about game environment is the Pittsburgh and Cincinnati game appears to be being schemed by the industry. Um, and we have to understand that this is going to be one of the slowest games we'll see all season. Uh, these are two slow-paced teams. These are two teams who we kind of know what Pittsburgh's going to do, but Cincinnati, if they are allowed to run the football, they're going to run the football, and they're we know that they can pass uh, if they're forced to. Is Pitt likely to force them to? That remains uh, in the air. So my thoughts here are that the. Again, the field is likely to adopt a higher degree of certainty than this game uh, actually has.
0: Party That's actually shots. a good one to mention. I'm glad you mentioned that one. I've seen it written up a few places, and, and you know, I don't know. I get the appeal. They're both concentrated offenses, which I think is you know what I often look for. But yeah, that the pace in that game is just atrocious, and both defenses are pretty solid. I don't. I don't think I would. I don't think I'm gonna go there myself.
1: Yes, sir. All right. Let's uh let's clean up wide receiver and defense and then we'll open it up for questions. Wide receiver, I pretty much uh alluded to it earlier. The top four highest priced players are four of the five players that have legitimate shots at 40 plus point ceilings. I will be concentrating a good portion of my roster uh builds towards targeting those four wide receivers. Um other guys that carry, you know, 30 plus point ceilings. Obviously Chris Godwin does, he's going to need to hit the bonus and score. Uh we talked about that a good deal. I also like Adam Thielen in that Minnesota and San Francisco game. We have to realize kind of who Adam Thielen is at this point in his career. He's going to need the volume, he's going to need probably multiple touchdowns to hit uh 30 plus points, but it is within his range of outcomes. A guy that I think is pretty much going overlooked is Devonta Smith. Um, We expect some significant ownership or actually we don't really, but uh, we talked about Jalen hurts and his upside. I feel like a different way to get to that upside is through Devonta Smith. We know he has extreme per touch efficiency, one of the best uh, young wide receivers in the NFL game along the same note. We've kind of talked about this all year. uh, Philadelphia is Basically riddled from top to bottom from skilled position players on ability to generate splash plays. Who also gets lumped in with that, Quez. Uh gets lumped in with that, Quez Watkins. Uh, oh and God. Jalen Not and, J- and Jalen Rhaegor also gets lumped <laughs> into that. That said, we know that Philadelphia has kind of transitioned how they're running their offense. We know that they are a primarily run-first offense now. So in order for that kind of upside to be unlocked, it would primarily have to come from the Giants forcing their hand. So that's another game stack uh, idea. But Devonta Smith, high per touch upside, um, could pop for 30 points at really, really low ownership. The last one I'll mention, at, well, I got, I got two more spots I want to mention before I turn it over to you, X. The first is DJ Moore at 62 Non existent expected ownership. DJ Moore with the upside that he has, with the talent level that he has against a team in Miami who has been kind of all over the map in the secondary. Uh, highly, highly intriguing to me. Likeliest scenario for him is seven to eight targets, but we know that he carries that double digit look upside. The last place I want to mention, and this is another one of those like potential slate opening what can it do for the rest of your roster spots and it's a, a place that I mentioned also in the end around and that is Tennessee's pass catchers primarily they're wide receivers so AJ Brown is out Julio Jones is out Marcus Johnson now is out Cameron Batson is on the IR so they are left with Nick Westbrook-Ikine Chester Rogers and Des Fitz- Fitzpatrick as their primary pass catchers. Obviously, we know they have the trio of tight ends in Anthony Ferguson, Michael Pruitt, Jeff Swaim are typically those three. Jeff Swaim is currently questionable, looking to come make it back from a concussion. He was a full participant on Friday, uh, but we know that this offense is likely going to have to be passing, and it's pretty likely that one of these three wide receivers is going to give you 20-plus fantasy points this week, and they are not going to be owned at I can't tell you who it's going to be between uh, Westbrook, Akine and Chester Rogers and Des Fitzpatrick, but we know that these three are going to be the primary three on the field, likely for most of the game. So that's the last thing I'll say about that over to you, bro. All
0: right. Oh man. Yeah. DJ Moore is one of my favorite tournament plays. Um, He's like a top 10 NFL wide receiver. Uh, Amazing, like amazing talent. And you know, Robbie Anderson is clearly no threat anymore. So like he's, He should get volume. He's got upside. Miami's defense has struggled. uh, against wide receivers. Um, I love him. Uh, A couple of guys I want to mention. I want to talk about Keenan Allen a little bit because he's projected for extremely high ownership, like about 18%. Um, He's just shy of that 20% mark that we talked about. Um, I'm, I have a hard time playing Keenan Allen in tournaments in general. And especially like 7,400 is kind of getting towards the higher end of his price range. Like he's one of those like really strong floor. He's unlikely to kill a roster, but he's also like extremely unlikely to be the reason you want a tournament. Right? Like at 7,400, you need about 30 points for a four X score. If you want to go on three X and seven, you need what's that 28, 29. Um, It's, that's possible for him, but I think extremely unlikely. Like I would, there's so many guys priced around how I would so much rather play like Debo, uh, like Godwin, like Evans, uh, like Tamar Chase, um, or I think they have much stronger ceilings. Um, a couple other guys I want to mention, Mike Williams, his skill set actually lines up pretty well for this matchup where like early on in the season, they were using Mike Williams in this X role and it was incredibly productive and it was awesome. And if you play Mike Williams, you're just printing money. And then they decided to change that. They decided we're going to move him back to like his deep perimeter threat role. And I sort of stubbornly kept playing him anyway, being like, surely the Jets will realize this, or the Jets, the Chargers, will realize this isn't working for them. Their points per game, their point scored per game has gone down dramatically since they made this change. Like, they need Mike Williams in that role. They'll make that change. They'll change him back. They're a smart coaching staff. Uh, the assumption of rational coaching is a dangerous thing uh they have not really changed his role but this is a matchup where the uh, the denver is vulnerable to deep passing and i don't have the stats handy i'd have to go dig them up again um but you can take my word from it for now Uh, if you don't want to take my word from it hit me up in discord later and i'll find them for you um but denver is vulnerable to deep passing and so mike williams like this this Matchup fits his skill set kind of perfectly. Uh, I will make, I will mention Marquez Valdez. Scantling is one of my favorite tournament plays every week because he's one of those guys who can get there on three or four catches. Um, I don't think there's really much more that needs to be said about him. Um, who's the other guy I wanted to mention? Where'd he go? Oh, uh, hold your nose for this one, but Odell Beckham. Um, he's 5k. He's on the Rams. Now he's had more time to, uh, to digest and understand the offense. Right. Like he played, he didn't play much his first game against the 49ers, obviously, because he just joined the team. But now he's had plenty of time to adapt to the offense. If you think that he's not like there's, there's two views of Odo Beckham, I think one he's that one is that he's still talented um, and was just kind of misused and lost on that, like Cleveland run first offense that just didn't utilize him. And the advanced metrics support this view. Uh, he's been tracked as being open on an extremely high percentage of his routes, um, one of the highest in the NFL. And they just weren't hitting him. Um, so I think that he's got a lot of upside at 5K. Now the other, to be fair, the other side of the coin with Odell Beckham is people just viewing that he's washed or he's just not trying hard anymore, whatever for, he could just be done, um, which is possible. But at 2.8% ownership, which is what I have him projected for right now, and at 5K, I will happily, I would happily take the risk on some Odell Beckham shares. Uh, Kenny Galladay is 5,100 and he hasn't, you know, he's another one, one of those guys like he's another one, one of those deep threat wide receivers who can get their unlimited volume. Uh, the matchup is fine. The Giants, again, like if you, if you believe in this Giants coaching regime change thing and you believe that teams come out in a new coaching regime and a new offensive scheme and play really hard. Um, you want to if you want to buy into that narrative, I think that Galladay has ceiling. Um, and finally, I will mention uh, Zach Pascal or Pascal. I don't know how he pronounces it. Um, Zach Pascal is coming in at two percent ownership compared to our friend Michael Pittman, the alpha receiver of that offense at twenty percent ownership. so uh, ownership is basically saying that Pittman is a 10 to one favorite to outscore uh, Pascal and Pascal is a is a is a not a huge yardage guy, um, but he's a tremendous red zone threat um, and He's one of the only really two full-time weapons on the Colts. Uh, it's him and Pittman and then some rotational guys and a bunch of, you know, like a, a slew of tight ends um, and 3,500 in a pass funnel matchup uh, against a Bucks defense that is is clearly going to be doing their best to take away Pittman, um, whether or not they're successful. I don't know, but I, I think that Pascal at 3,500 just brings, you know, 35 for 3,500 for 2% ownership. Um, I just think he has a lot more upside than in one of the best game environments, of the week um, just has a lot more upside than his ownership is, uh, is implying.
1: Yeah. To clean that up from the stat monkey, Odell Beckham jr. Oh, uh, ranks top three in the league in separation and open rate against man coverage. Uh, we expect heavy zone coverage this week against green Bay Packers. That's not to say that. Everything that X said could not play out, but uh, that is, I think, the stat you were referring to, I think. Um, Denver. I'll,
0: I'll be honest, I didn't see it as a, as a type of coverage, so that's a good, that's a good oh, point okay. of clarity, thank you.
1: Um,
0: Denver's defense has
1: allowed the fourth deepest yards per completion uh, in the NFL at 11.5, so back to your Mike Williams discussion. Uh, yeah, that's all I got.
0: Yes, thank you for backing me up on the stats. See, I yes, was not sir. just talking
1: out of my ass. Hooray. <laughs> all right, man, let's talk some defense. I'm going to lead this one because this is uh, a passion of Ish. mine is defensive selection. Uh, but, all right, so we have the ownership coming in on the Texans at 2.3. Behind them, they are expected to garner, oh God, what is it? 27 to 28 to 30% ownership. Behind the them is, ever seen. <laughs> yeah, behind them is the Jags at 2.2, 15% ownership, the Falcons at 2.5, 12% ownership, the Bengals at 2.7, 9% ownership, the Jets, the Panthers. Okay, so you, you get the picture. Everybody's paying down at defense this week. So where do I immediately look? Oh, the highest own or the highest price defense on the slate is the Patriots at 3.9. They have provided double-digit fantasy points each of the last five weeks. Good God almighty. 12 points, 13 points, 20 points, 11 points, and 28 points in their shutout of Atlanta. They have allowed zero points on the scoreboard, seven points against Cleveland, six points against Carolina, 24 points against the Chargers, but they scored a defensive touchdown, and 13 points against the Jets over their last five games. They have three defensive touchdowns over that span. They have 15 sacks, so three a game on average over that span. And they have five, eight, 10, 12 interceptions over the last five games. Who are they playing? They're playing Tennessee with the aforementioned who the hell is that guy at pass catcher and running back and across their defense. So we expect New England to get better field position. We expect them to win time of possession battle. We expect Tennessee to be throwing a little bit more than their season average. Look at Tannehill's pass attempts in his last game when they were going through all these injuries. He threw the ball 52 times against Houston, dude. Yeah, he threw four picks, had two fumbles and zero lost fumbles in that game. Ryan Tannehill is not that poor of a quarterback, but when you take away a dude's top weapons basically across his entire roster, you're going to see some growing pains and you're going to see some mistakes being made. So the Patriots at 3.9, they differentiate your roster from a roster construction standpoint, from a salary allocation standpoint, and they're the best defensive unit on paper on the slate. So I will probably be 80 to 90% maybe Patriots defense this week for all of those reasons. I will end there. Over to you.
0: Leverage roster is Zach Wilson to Elijah Moore with Pat's D. Like you just smash the ownership on Tyrod. You smash the ownership on Brandon Cooks. You smash the ownership of Houston defense. You can even play Brandon Cooks back. Um, but like you tank those Houston defense rosters and playing Zach Wilson at your quarterback uh, means you have plenty of salary to spend up for the New England D. Um, the projections I'm looking at, like I have the New England Patriots as the highest projected scoring defense. Um, With the Houston defense as the second highest projected scoring defense, Um, so I'm okay with the Houston defense, and like I'm all I'm all over pick on the Jets, right? Like I'm fine playing Houston. I think that's okay. Um, Just recognize that you're playing into massive ownership. I think personally, I would shy away from a couple of the other cheap defenses. I would not like the other two defenses that are projected for over 10 percent ownership are Jacksonville and Atlanta, which are very clear. uh, Like I'm making a I'm trying to pivot away from the Houston shock. I think that Houston is just an objectively much stronger defensive play than those two. So I would play those two over Jacksonville or Atlanta personally. Um, I think Bengals D is okay. Uh, You can get them. They're another pay down defense that you can get at a lower level of ownership. Um, I think Carolina D is okay. I think Philadelphia D is okay. Like Philly D we've seen. um, They're an aggressive defense. They've gotten a couple of defensive touchdowns lately. They have, um, and they're playing as Danny Jones, who is, you know, who who has upside. We talked about his upside, but we also know that he can be an incredibly uh, mistake prone quarterback. Um those are really it for me. Like this is not a like normally I'm like five, six, seven defenses across 150 lineups. And this one, this week, I feel like it's going to be like four, maybe five. So like, I just don't see a lot to love at defense. Uh, I think, you know, Houston is it, it's common for us to have really crappy pay down options that people just fixate on because they've been told like pay down at defense because defense is super volatile. So just just pay down um, and hope you get lucky. And, you know, I think that Houston is a rare pay down defense that's actually in a good spot um, where Zach Wilson is like I'll play Zach Wilson. He has upside, but he also has downside. Um, like most of my defensive exposure, I'm with Hilo. like most of my defensive exposure is going to be under New England. Uh, I'll have Houston. I'll have Philly. Um, I'll have Carolina and maybe some maybe some Miami. I don't know. That's probably yeah, um, um, some bang- um, maybe some Bengals. That's it, though. Like I, I'm. It's a week where the defensive shock is is pretty strong, uh, and then where the de- and then where there's one really clear like best defense that no one is playing, and so I will happily just latch onto that at very low ownership.
1: Yeah, when we say low ownership, like there's some places that have reputable projections for ownership that have the Patriots coming in sub one percent. Like that's uh, that's pretty insane. gnarly. It's insane for the, pretty gnarly. the same as so, the yeah. best
0: defense on the slate, right? Like, yeah,
1: yep. And that's a nod to just how ingrained uh, pay down at tight end and pay down at defense is. Again, giving further credence for me to pay up and alter the basically composition of my roster in doing so.
0: All right, man. Yeah, I agree. Actually, I was going to say I'm actually interested in doing some like research. Maybe I'll do this in the offseason. on. On how, on how paying down at defense is working, like looking at the top 1% of, you know, tourney lineups in the Millie Maker or something like that and seeing how frequently it's like a pay down defense versus a pay up defense or, or how often the chalk defense hits, right? We had like the Chiefs defense hit a pretty high ownership a couple weeks ago, but they still weren't, they had a good game, but they, I think they were like the fifth or sixth highest scoring defense. I'm just, I'm curious how often it works. And if there's like, you know, if there's, uh, if people are just being idiots by continuing to pay down over and over and over, um, or if they're actually being smart i just i don't i don't i just, I don't, I just don't have the data
1: <clears throat> yeah i'd be interested in that as well yeah i agree um i i wrote as much also in the uh in the end around the texans are probably the closest i've come to to being okay with the chunk pay down unit um obviously 10 takeaways over the last two games is fairly significant um and noteworthy so um agreed there but again that game is such a wide range of outcomes that i like what paying up at uh, at defense does to the rest of my roster from a leverage perspective all right man that is closing parting shots um we don't have any written questions but i know is maximus still even in here he had a question earlier i don't see him in the chat anymore anybody we'll give you a couple minutes to raise your hand if you want to come on up and ask a question other than that we will be getting out of here. We got one.
2: There he is, Maximus is in. Yay. Five questions. Sweet. Come on up, brother. I just sent you one. What's going on, man? We got you. Hey. How's it going, guys?
3: What's Um, up, dude? Hey. So I actually put this question in uh, the chat. For Inner Circle. And um, it was basically, um, from my perspective, when I was starting to build, it seemed like because of so much uncertainty this week, received basically, I was finding it easier to steer to MME-type builds as opposed to single-entry 3-max. And the question was basically, like, how are you approaching, from the perspective of a single-entry 3-max build, this week. And then I, I basically noted in that message that uh, in reading all the, the edge write-ups, I kind of felt the energy and the excitement from Hilo on that Minnesota San Francisco game, just the write-up alone. And um, I was curious, from a single-entry three-max standpoint, is that a game that's kind of like a center kind of centerpiece to, uh, to steer towards with that kind of uh, roster build, at least to start?
0: Actually, yeah, so, can, can I ask ahead. a question first? I oh, want to ask a question back to you, Maximus, um, because you mentioned something really interesting uh, before you kind of got into the question about Minnesota San Francisco, which is you said you're you're finding it easier to build for MME.
3: Sorry, I was in a classroom here.
0: Oh, no worries. You, you said you were finding it easier to build for MME than for single interior 3MAX. And I'm curious, why do you feel that is? Well,
2: uh, I think there's, uh, from what you, well, one thing is just the ownership is
3: so spread out it kind of makes it i'm sorry give me one second guys you actually caught me unfortunately dropping somebody off right now yes, sir. but uh, i actually find the uh, spread out ownership um and especially if you're playing mme where you're you're playing a tournament where you're building a lot of teams uh it is kind of exciting to uh to uh have a bunch of different directions to be able to kind of steer toward.
0: Yeah, it's the it's the it's the cover the bases. It's the, the what if scenarios. You can get more what if scenarios. Does that sound right? Right. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Definitely, that's part of it. Cool. So, I just want I'll I'll let Hilo take the answer on the game because he did the I think he did the write up for that one. um But I just I just want to note like. I as someone who's gone back and forth various times in my DFS career between playing three max uh, as my primary focus and, and smaller field stuff and then playing large field stuff and hundred and fifty. Um and that's even happened this season, right? I play like I play high dollar stuff uh in small field tournaments on FanDuel. Um, but then I've been playing 150 on Yahoo because they have these like credit. Okay, give me one second. They have these big guaranteed overlay tournaments on Yahoo. Um, that i've been doing 150 in and so i've kind of gone back and forth i think that i will say this i think the illusion of it being easier to build 150 lineups or, or mme whether it's 150 or not um whether it's just more i think the illusion of that being easier because you can cover more bases is kind of just that it's an illusion because yes you can cover more bases but so can everyone else And so it can feel like you can take more risk in MME um, because you're like, well, okay, well, you know, I I have 150 lineups to go up, to go off of. So I can definitely spend, you know, two or three lineups on like this goofy player Um, because if he hits, it will be awesome. And I only have, you know, he's only 1% owned, Um, but everyone else has the same kind of flexibility. And in small field stuff, it's hard to find the right balance and it's kind of more art than science, but I don't have to take on as much risk in small field tournaments. Um, Like you don't have to find the 1% own guy, but you also know that in small field tournaments, the chalk is going to be chalkier. A guy who's like 20% in the Millie maker might be 30% in a similarly priced, you know, single entry tournament and might be 40% or 50% in a high dollar uh, single entry tournament. So there's more. G-O there's more leverage. 15, 15, 15. <laughs> there's more leverage in going away from the chalk in these small field tournaments. So I kind of feel like there's a bit of an illusion of illusion of safety in um in in these large field in large field MME uh, that I
2: think is somewhat false.
1: Yeah, hundred uh, percent concur. Um, that statement at the beginning of your question, um, kind of rang my eardrums as well uh, because I think it's a misunderstanding on a slate like this to feel more or I guess a not a hole in process but a a misunderstanding of general DFS principles to feel more comfortable building MME um, on a slate like this because that is basically what the field is feeling too. So we kind of Preach making yourself feel a little uncomfortable because we're playing for those one percent outcomes um, to take down GPPs. And the way that I approach this is just my habit pattern and how I approach single entry and three max is I am willing to accept much higher variance because the field in those tournaments is not. So I play those those tournaments from a a similar a similarly (laughs) like large field MME mindset. But I'm doing it by managing my variance across my entire portfolio as opposed to the field is more
2: likely to try. I'm willing to put myself in. high-variant spots, but I'm not there. Um, We're just getting a little bit of bleed.
1: Over on the audio. All right, y'all. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving and holiday weekend. Hope to see you guys at the top of the leaderboard, and we will see you next Saturday.
0: I'm going to go eat leftovers. Nom, nom, nom. Yeah. Y'all have a great rest of your weekend. Great holiday. Take care.